Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 27, Matthew writes, When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. Matthew wants to convince the reader of the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. We've already seen the king's power and authority over disease and over disaster and over demons and even over death itself. And now Matthew adds darkness to the list of the things that Jesus has power over and authority over. Two blind men seek Jesus out and they make a request in verse 27. The Lord responds first with a test at the beginning of verse 28. And then a touch in verse 29 and 30. And then he assigns them a task in the end of verse 30. He asks the blind men if they believe. And they respond with, yes, Lord. Jesus touches their eyes and says, according to your faith, let it be done to you in verse 29. Jesus instructs the former blind men and now sighted saints to tell no one. They, however, go and tell many in verse 31. And so it prompts a question, why would Jesus issue this order? And of course, the response, why would these men disobey the king after experiencing such a wonderful healing. In this passage, we see facets of faith and how the recipients of miracles are sometimes more focused on the miracle than they are on the, on the Messiah. And it, we can be somewhat sympathetic, particularly if you find yourself in a dark place or an empty place or a lonely place, a hurtful place. And you want freedom from the pain. You want deliverance from the oppression. Jesus knows our faith and knows how to test our faith and grow our faith. We learn in the New Testament without faith it's impossible to please him in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. But without obedience it's impossible to honor him. So let's look. The blind men's request. Look with me at verse 27. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. We're not told how these men came to be blind. We're not told whether or not they were blind from birth or by accident or by sin. Was the blindness partial or total? What we do know is that Jesus has cured the incurable. Jesus has raised the dead. 
And even though these men are blind, they're certainly not deaf and they're certainly not dumb and they certainly seem to have at least some measure of discernment. These blind men recognize Jesus as the king, as the long-awaited Messiah, the rightful king of Israel. The reason why we know this is even though we're in Matthew chapter 9, this is the first time anyone has referred to Jesus by his messianic title, the son of David. And so I'm going to suggest to you that these blind men recognize Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah and the rightful king of Israel. The prophets predicted the true king would bind up the brokenhearted, that he would proclaim liberty to the captives, that he would give sight to the blind in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1. And the reason why all of this becomes so very important is I can't help but think back to a presidential candidate who said when asked what his favorite book was, he said the Bible and they said, well, can you give us a one Bible verse? And he goes, no, 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 I can't do that. Well, the reason why I find that important is because depending on who you are, if I were to ask you that same question, what is your favorite Bible verse? I'm hoping you would refer to some verse that was particularly important to you in relationship to what God has done in your life or what Jesus has done in your life. Why am I even saying this? Because if you're blind, do you think that the Old Testament Texts that refer to blindness and hope for the blind would be especially meaningful to you? Would be particularly important to you? Imagine you're growing up in first century Israel and you're blind. And so what is it about your condition that you appeal to God? In Isaiah chapter 42 verses 6 and 7, the prophet Isaiah wrote, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant to the people, for a light to the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. You can imagine if you're blind, there's nothing more that you want than to see. I'm completely convinced that as Saeed Abedini once again woke up in an Iranian prison cell this morning, as his wife pleads and begs and prays every single day for his release, that these are the scriptures that become important. In Matthew's gospel... These two blind men are the first to call Jesus by this messianic title. And even though they are blind, they see Jesus as the Messiah. And this presents an interesting biblical principle. In, in John chapter 1 verse 9, we read in John's gospel, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. John understood that Jesus is the light that has come into the world in order to dispel the darkness and give us the ability to see the truth, not only about ourselves, but about the Lord. And so Jesus is our light source. Jesus is our bright 
light. It's because of Jesus that we can see everything else. Someone once said that when the sun shines, it gives the capacity for you to see. And when Jesus is real, it gives you the ability to see everything else. Visual impairment and blindness was not uncommon in the ancient world. Disease, unsanitary conditions, sexually transmitted diseases, all contributed to visual impairment. Many women gave birth to blind babies, and people became blind through disease, through accident, through, through injury. And it wouldn't have been unusual for blind people to congregate together to hold each other's hand. The same is true even in the world in which we live. If you have the ability to travel, not just in our own country, but in countries around the world, you'll find that the visually impaired often provide support and encouragement to, to one another. In the Bible, blindness is often pictured as a, as a type of spiritual ignorance. It becomes a, a symbol of sorts to represent unbelief. And that's the way it's used in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, and Matthew chapter 15, verse 14. A picture of people who are in the dark. But you'll note these blind men invoke his name and beg for mercy. By the way, I want to draw your attention to one word in that, in that passage. It's the word translated crying. It's a word that means to scream at the top of your lungs. So if you're imagining in the text a kind of a pitiful, quiet conversation you would be missing the point. After leaving Matthew's party, I'm sure that there's a large group of people who have, have gathered. They could not see Jesus, but they knew that he was close by. They knew that Jesus was their only hope for deliverance from the dark dungeon of their blindness and as you can imagine, darkness takes many forms. In the physical world, it's the absence of light. In the spiritual world, I think it's the absence of spiritual light. We live in a dark world. And so Jesus comes into the world to open the eyes of the blind, both physical and spiritual. And even the people who are the most deprived of light long for his mercy, long for his grace, long for his love. Jesus is the true light and longs to make himself known to all people. You know, it's interesting. It's interesting in the Old Testament, as you read through the Old Testament, there are numerous citations where the Old Testament writers will write, lift your eyes up and look and see. The Dutch patriot Cory ten Boom, who hid Nazis in World War II used to say, no matter how deep our darkness, he is deeper still. In that way, that wonderful Dutch way that she would talk. The darkness profound. Jesus, more profound. And so between verses 28 and 30, we get his response, Jesus' response. 
in the passage, we, we find a test and a touch and a task. Let's look first at the test. Look what it says. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Now we're left with the impression that as the blind men screamed repeatedly, that Jesus at first didn't respond to their cries. And you might be wondering, why isn't that? Or why is that? Why isn't that Jesus doesn't show up the first time that I cry? Why doesn't Jesus show up the first time that I cry out to him? And I'm going to suggest to you that sometimes Jesus will wait to test our sincerity. To test our willingness to truly, truly ask. And note what the text itself says. They followed Jesus into the house. The reason why I find this interesting is it caused me to think about which house. It says the house. Apparently, it leaves the, the reader with the impression that this is a house where he frequented or a house where he stayed. It could very well be his house. Jesus is wherever it is that he stays and he's cornered by these blind men. Can you imagine? They find him. They're knocking on the door. They're knocking on the door. They're tapping at the door. What happens when the crowds thin and they go away? And again, I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus is testing their willingness. Jesus is testing their sincerity. Jesus is testing whether or not they really want to be healed. And in part, this becomes important to each and every one of you because some people will ask you the question, are you really serious about being a Christ follower, a Jesus lover, a real believer? The reason, again, why I find this interesting is because in the course of the conversation and as the text itself unfolds, Jesus compels these men to meet him alone. Don't you find that interesting? He compels them to meet him alone. And the reason why I find this important because eventually, eventually each and every one of us are going to have to come to Jesus by ourselves, Without your husband. Without your wife. Without your pastor. You see, the truth is each and every one of us has to come to Jesus alone to be delivered from the darkness, to embrace the light, to believe the truth. And so it shouldn't surprise you that Jesus would challenge their faith. And it shouldn't surprise you that Jesus will challenge yours. It isn't because he doesn't know the truth. It isn't because he isn't able to see into your heart or he isn't able to see into your circumstance. The truth is you don't always see into your own circumstances. You know, the Bible says that the heart of man is desperately wicked and who can know it? And every once in a while, 
every once in a while. If you really want to know the truth about your heart and you really want to know the truth about your spiritual condition, Jesus will allow you to discover what it is. An untested faith is probably never going to be real faith at all. So again, why does Jesus do this? Because confidence is vital for blessing and power. W.H. Griffith Thomas said, faith is the hand that takes what God offers, the link between divine fullness and human need. I like that. When W.H. Griffith Thomas says, faith is the hand that takes what God offers. And in this particular instance, when we look at the grand scope of the Bible, God is offering each and every one of us friendship, fellowship, relationship, forgiveness, hope, mercy, light. And look what Jesus says. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Let's pause for a minute. The question at first might seem cruel. Imagine you said to a person who's blind, hey, would you like to have your sight? And you think, what a ridiculous question. Who wouldn't want their sight? Who wouldn't want to be cancer free? Who wouldn't want to have their deaf ears opened? Who wouldn't want the leprosy to go away. Who wouldn't want to be happily married? Who wouldn't want that? But it isn't. And let me tell you why it's not a cruel question. When Jesus says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? It isn't just simply a question about his power, and it isn't just simply a question about his ability. I'm going to suggest to you that this is an invitation to a personal relationship with him. In a very real sense, Jesus is asking these blind men about whether or not there's even the possibility that they would want to have a relationship with him. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Believe that I'm able to do this. Faith believes the word of God for what it can't see and is rewarded by seeing what it believes. Remember in the world in which we live, we live in a world that says believing it or seeing is believing. But that's not true in the Bible. In the Bible, believing is seeing. You see, you might even wonder if such a thing is even possible. Friendship, fellowship with God. And there is one requirement for a miracle, faith. Not just any kind of faith, but the kind of faith that gives Jesus a good, hard look. You must place your hand in his hand. You must place your confidence in his identity, in his ability. You have to be willing to say, Jesus, you can make me see. Jesus, you can make me someone brand new. Some people think that Jesus wants people to remain in darkness. And nothing could be further from the truth. For the person who says, 
Jesus wants my life miserable. Jesus wants my marriage miserable, my health miserable. Jesus wants me to remain in darkness. It reminds me of a passage in scripture. At one point in his ministry, Paul found himself alone in Athens in Acts chapter 17. He preaches to a group of philosophers at a place called Mars Hill or the Areopagus. He points to how religious these people are, how curious they are, and how they were willing to, to uh, have a monument on, on, on a piece of stone. And they wrote in that stone a, a single Greek word, agnostos. It's a Greek word that meant to the unknown. In this particular instance, to the unknown God for fear of offending or alienating or antagonizing some supernatural spirit out there, they, they, they erected this monument. It reminds me of a story of a, of a man who was in Vietnam and he, he, his partner had on a, a cross and, and a crescent and, uh, and the Hindu wheel of life. And he goes, what do you have all of these religious symbols hanging around your neck? And the guy says, look, when you're at war, you can't af afford to offend anybody. <laughs> the Greeks were, in a sense, superstitious. Paul said, the one that you honor or worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. And then he said, he went on and he said, quote, and this is in Acts 17, God who made the world and everything in it since he is the Lord of heaven and earth doesn't dwell in temples made with hands nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives life to all, breath and all things. Verse 26, and he is made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him even though he's not far from each and every one of us. Paul argues that God places people not in the circumstances where they are for the purpose so that they won't know God. He places people in the circumstances where they are so that they will know God. You might be thinking, well, you know, God appointed me to live in the 20th and maybe part of the 21st century. God appointed me to live in Colorado or California or wherever it is that you happen to be from. And some of you might wonder, did God place certain people in certain times and certain circumstances so that they would remain in the dark? And Paul argues, you're absolutely wrong. God has placed each person in each circumstance, each and every time. Not so that they would be far away from God, but so that they would be near to him. And so we proclaim the gospel. So we talk about Jesus. Faith is belief, reliance, trust. Jesus asks the question, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Heal? Yes. Save? Yes. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. God's a rewarder of those who seek him, it says in Hebrews 11.6. Religion, race, good works, nothing is pleasing to God apart from faith. 
And again, I'm not talking about Catholic faith and I'm not talking about Protestant faith. I am talking about the trust and the confidence that wells up inside of your heart as you consider the question that Jesus has given whether or not you believe he's capable of making the darkness go away. As shocking as it may sound, some people don't really want to be healed. And you might be wondering, that's ridiculous, that's absurd. Why would a person want to remain blind? There was steady work for the blind. You could always hold out your hand and you could always beg. And in that culture, in that particular society, acts of generosity to those in need was viewed as something special. Some are not willing to give up their idol. Some people won't give up their God. Some people refuse to abandon their addiction. Years ago, of all things, this was long before marijuana was legalized in the state of Colorado. Guess what? There was a convention here in Colorado at downtown Denver. There was a cocaine anonymous convention. I read it in an article years ago. Mike earned $250,000 a year as an international salesman. He had a wife and three children. He was also a drug trafficker. Quote, I became my biggest customer, Mike said. Always a bad idea, he writes, if you deal drugs. The article goes on and says, Jay was a wealthy lawyer with his own firm. Quote, one time I came home and my wife had my children's birth certificates on the table and she said, swear on these that you didn't use today. Said Jay, the son of a judge, quote, he swore that he didn't use. He was lying. Do you really want the darkness to go away? Do you really want the emptiness to go away? Do you want the guilt to go away? In Matthew's gospel, faith connects us to Jesus. But unbelief will disconnect us from Jesus, from his grace, from his mercy. The mockers and skeptics, you'll remember earlier in, in chapter 9, when they discovered that Jesus showed up, remember what he said about the little girl? She's asleep. And they laughed and they mocked and they ridiculed. And they were asked to leave. The crowd pressing Jesus near the woman with the issue of blood did not receive the same miracle as the woman who reached out and touched him. So there were two groups of people, the crowd and the woman. The Pharisees, by the way, later on, won't believe Jesus. We're going to sneak ahead in the text. In verse 34, it says, but the Pharisee says, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Jesus is going to heal. He is going to deliver. He's going to raise someone from the dead. He's going to cast out a demon. The Pharisees don't believe him. And like the crowds they so despised, they're going to receive nothing from Jesus. Believe nothing, and you get nothing. You should tweet that. 
believe nothing and you get nothing. In Matthew's gospel, faith connects us to Jesus. Unbelief disconnects us. And so as we fast forward, look what it says in verse 29, the touch in healing. It says, quote, then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be done to you. Now again, in Matthew's gospel, he's already shown up several times or the issue of faith has shown up several times. The faith issue has been brought up in chapter eight. The faith issue has been brought up in chapter nine. The centurion was said to have great faith in chapter eight, verse 10. The disciples in the storm had little faith in chapter eight, verse 26. We've seen persistent faith of paralyzed, of a paralyzed man whose friends drop him from the roof into the presence of Jesus. Great faith, little faith, persistent faith. And we've seen tested faith. When Jairus is tested, when these blind men are tested, and Jesus invites them to exercise faith, Jesus receives their faith and accepts their faith and then acts on their faith. Remember, this is faith based on what they believe about Jesus. This isn't the kind of weird and kooky idea that sometimes circulates through modern Christianity by certain people who say, faith, there's a force and your words are the containers of the force. That's not true. Faith isn't a force and your words aren't the container of Faith isn't a substance that you use to manipulate God. If that's your idea of faith, then you have less than a biblical idea about faith. When the Bible presents faith, it's always confidence in Jesus, belief about Jesus, the identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, the task at hand of Jesus. Jesus isn't manipulated or bound by their faith. For all intents and purposes, it appears that Jesus acts by sheer grace. John Knox translates the statement, according to your faith, let it be done to you. John Knox wrote this, your faith shall not be disappointed. I like that. Your faith won't be disappointed. It's ambiguous. If you have no faith, guess what? Your faith won't be disappointed. The person who doesn't believe anything doesn't get anything. But the person who believes everything that the Bible has to say about Jesus can have this amazing expectation. It, of course, begs the question. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you really believe about him? In John's gospel, in John chapter 12, verse 35, and again in verse 36, and again in verse 46, repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly we read Jesus saying, I have come as a light into the world. Do you believe that? Light always allows you to see. And so reveal in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, John the apostle will later write, God is light. 
Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says, we are to stand in the light. 1 John 1 7, we walk in the light. God is light. We stand in the light. We walk in the light. No wonder believers in Thessaloniki were told by Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 5, you are the children of the light. When we were kids, we used to sing a song. You're the children of the light. You're the children of the day and we need not ever stumble in an ever darkened way. Though the darkness goes, grows thick around, we don't have to fear. The darkness comes and seems to swallow us up. And so why would you want to remain in the dark? Why would the unsaved not be saved? Why would the guilty remain in their guilt? Why would the person sitting in darkness remain in their darkness? And look what it says. He touched their eyes. According to your faith, let it be done. Verse 30. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them saying, see that no one knows it. Note the elements involved in the healing. Touch, verse 29. Faith at the end of verse 29. The actual healing in verse 30. Why is all of that important? Because the blind men had a very special need. They had a very specific and special need. And I'm going to suggest that some of you have a very specific and special need as well. There's something that you need from Jesus. And what I want to do is I want to encourage you to ask him. Jesus touched them in a special way. Their special need required a special touch. And so it shouldn't alarm you. It shouldn't frustrate you. And it shouldn't upset you that your very special need also needs a special touch. Don't be afraid to ask Jesus to meet your need. Jesus knows your faith. Guess what? He might test your faith, but also know that he's in the process of growing your faith. I don't know if you ever saw the movie that featured, I think it was Anne Bancroft and Patty Duke. Patty Duke plays Helen Keller. And in the earlier movie, I think there's been several dramatic movies made of Helen Keller's life. But there's one particular uh, dramatic moment in, in one particular movie that is, is best represented by Helen Keller's own world. She writes of the dramatic moment when Annie Sullivan first broke through her dark and silent world with this illumination of, of language. This from her, her autobiography. Helen Keller writes, we walked down the path to the wall house, attracted by the fragrance of the honeysuckle with which it was covered. Someone was drawing water and my teacher placed my hand under the spout and the cool stream gushed over one hand and she spelled into the other word, water. First slowly, then rapidly. Helen Keller writes, I stood still. My whole attention fixed upon the motion of her fingers. Suddenly I felt 
a misty consciousness as if something forgotten, a thrill of returning thought, and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew that W-A-T-E-R meant this wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. That living word awakened my soul, gave it light and hope, joy set it free. There were still barriers, it is true, but barriers that would be swept away in time. I love that because it's the perfect illustration of what happens when you really come into a right relationship with God and faith in Jesus, you, the darkness disappears. You understand that Jesus really is the solution to the problem of sin, the reality and the source of forgiveness, the ever-present power and hope. Certainly, this must have been how the blind man felt when when he was washed at the pool of Siloam for the first time, or what these blind men must have experienced at that very moment. Think about it. Their eyes are open and they see Jesus. And the first command out of Jesus' mouth, I need you to keep this healing private. What? Yeah, I, I need you to keep it private. What? How do former blind men keep the gift of sight private? Now think about it. Imagine you're a blind person and all of a sudden you go, hey, how you doing? Hey, wait. What? Weren't you blind yesterday? What's happened? Oh, excuse me, excuse me. How are you doing? pretty difficult to fake being blind and then seeing and then everybody sees you seeing some have suggested that Jesus is employing some sort of divine reverse psychology but I don't think that that's what's happened I, I don't think that that's what's happened well what, what did happen some have suggested that Jesus didn't want to foment a premature movement to crown him the king. Others, a premature revolution against the Roman government would have been a disaster. So God has planned a trip to Calvary. God is on a timetable. There's going to be a, a ministry and a, a journey to Jerusalem and a cross and a resurrection. And Jesus is on this strict timetable and he needs to accomplish the mission. And by the way, publicity usually takes two forms. Welcome and unwelcome. Things that help the mission and things that discourage the mission. What if the kind of publicity that Jesus is trying to avoid is going to disrupt the message and the ministry? Because do we live in a world where the miracle always takes precedence over the message? Actually, that is the world we live in. Are we for miracles? Of course we are. But what is the message? What is the message? What is the message? And by the way, there's something interesting that happens in Matthew's gospel from this point forward. 
Jesus will become a little more guarded. Jesus will be a little more cryptic. Jesus will be a little less open to being blunt and more open to being ambiguous. He will continue to speak in parables. And remember what a parable does. It reveals some things and it conceals other things. And by the way, according to Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 1 verse 45, it says that the Lord Jesus had to move his ministry out of Capernaum and into the desert regions. You want to know why? Because these guys didn't obey. In other words, their refusal to obey Jesus is going to make Jesus' ministry a little more difficult. Could it be that these formerly blind men might be tempted to pride or self-importance? Were they tempted to draw attention to themselves and the miracle? Was there a secret tendency to boast? We don't know. Whatever the reason, whatever the reason, the Bible is abundantly clear, honoring Jesus is better than dishonoring him. Obeying him is better than disobeying him. No wonder Paul warns in Romans chapter 12 verse 3, for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt each a measure of faith. And so when you read in verse 31, the sight had spread the news, but when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all of the country. We might be tempted to excuse their disobedience or even admire their disobedience as they spread the news about him. But I'm going to suggest to you that's a mistake. Dis disobedience to Jesus is always a mistake. William MacDonald writes, quote, probably by stirring up shallow curiosity than spirit-inspired interest, not even gratitude is a valid excuse for disobedience, unquote. I like that. It's not success that God rewards, but faithfulness to his will. It's not success that God rewards, but always the faithfulness of doing his will. This is where homespun wisdom becomes really helpful. My granny, who I miss every single day, used to say, you can do anything you want to if you want to do what you ought to do. Granny, can I do this? You can do anything you want to, just so long as it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Grandmas have a way of putting it into perspective. I read the interesting story of a woman named Rose Crawford. She'd been blind for 50 years. Quote, I just can't believe it, she gasped as the doctor lifted the bandages from her eyes after her recovery from delicate surgery in an Ontario hospital she wept for joy when for the first time in her life a dazzling and beautiful world of form and color greeted eyes that now were able to see the amazing thing about the story however is that 20 years of her blindness was unnecessary 
She didn't know that surgical techniques had been developed and that an operation could have restored her sight when she was 30 years old. The doctor said, quote, she just figured there was nothing that could have been done about her condition. Much of her life could have been different. When I read that, I thought, this text. So many people walk in darkness. Some of you waited a while to come into the light. Why did you wait so long? Why wouldn't you walk? Why wouldn't you embrace the fact that there's love and joy and hope in Christ? As I read the news account, I asked other questions. Why did she assume that her situation was hopeless? Why hadn't anyone ever told her about this life-transforming surgery? Then I thought about the plight of those unreached by the gospel. How many people living in this moral and spiritual darkness don't hear and don't see? And make no mistake about it. There are many people in this world who absolutely, positively insist that you keep your eyes shut and your mouth shut. As your pastor, I don't like to ask you to do a lot of things, but I really would like to ask you to do this. Open your eyes. Open your mouth. Tell them the truth about Jesus. Tell them the truth about love and tell them the truth about hope and tell them the truth that there is an exciting opportunity for them to experience hope. Someone said every Christian is a missionary and every unbeliever a mission field. And that's true. I want to close with this little poem doubt sees the obstacles faith sees the way doubt sees the darkest night faith sees the day doubt dreads to take a step faith soars on high doubt questions who believes faith answers I Jesus asks the question, do you believe I can do this? What do you think? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Lord, thank you that you're in the business of opening up hearts and eyes. Thank you that you're in the business of dispelling darkness and causing doubt to evaporate. Lord, we pray that you would give us confidence and courage to make the step in the right direction. And Lord, to give our doubts to you, to give our despair to you, to invite you to take the darkness, knowing that your light and in you is no darkness whatsoever. Lord, we don't want to continue in spiritual ignorance. 
Lord, we pray that with confidence we would believe your message of love, that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. And so, Lord, again, we invite you into our heart to make the darkness go away. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.